Well, we have, uh, for the last few weeks now, we are squarely in the midst, in the middle of a series we've been calling The Worry War, where we've been looking at this topic, not just of worry, but we're using that as kind of a, a context to talk about deeper issues that would lead to worry, talking about anxiety, talking about fear, talking about uh, just all the stuff of life that, that really rages upon us. And so for the last few weeks, we've been diving into that. And man, didn't Pastor Seth do an incredible job last week talking about anxiety and fear? If you did not hear that message, uh, if you missed church in Halifax last week or any of our locations here in St. John, uh, you missed something that will change everything for you. Uh, It was just incredible. I was so encouraged when I heard it Sunday. Uh, Just an incredible message. So make sure you go back and hear hear that. Uh, But but I want to talk today not about worry for a minute. I want to kind of pause the conversation on on worry and warning against worry. And I want to talk for a few minutes about what you do when worry's kind of got the best of you. What do you do when the battle on anxiety and fear, the battle of worry has gone from a place where you can fight it in your mind, where it has so weighed you down and so pressured you and so bogged down your life that it's gone from here to here and it's fundamentally beginning to affect and change you? What do we do when the pressures of life begin to squeeze us in such a way that it's no longer something I'm just kind of pressing through, but it's pressing through me? What do you do when the the pressures of life begin to squeeze the joy out of you? They start to change you. They start to, the things that you used to enjoy or find fulfillment from, it's just not the same anymore since it happened. Uh, You used to love to go do that and it brought so much satisfaction, but then when you went through that season, it kind of changed everything. It's like the, the DNA inside of you shifted and now I'm not feeling the same anymore. What do you do? When you can't press through something any longer and it's beginning to press through you. I find in life there are a lot of, a lot of the stresses that we face. There are things that we can just press through, right? Like that's one of the things you got to learn, some resilience. We could do a whole message about resilience that, you know, it gives some time. You just don't quit. You press through and things will change. Sometimes time's your best friend. You know, I was reminded of this this past week. I was boarding a plane in Guatemala. I'd been there for a week and uh, I, was, I was getting on the plane. Was, we, I got up at 3 a.m. because there's no fast way from Guatemala and there's no fast way to the Maritimes. So if you're leaving the Maritimes or you're getting to the Maritimes, it's going to be a long day. Anybody, anybody travel? And so I get up at 3 a.m. and I go to this airport and I'm getting on the airport. I'm, getting on, I'm, I'm boarding the plane and I get a notification on my phone that says, uh, your, your flight to Montreal has been canceled. And I, yeah! Right? been there a week, man. Like my, my mama's home with three kids. I got that kind of stress, right? I'm like, she needs a break. And I, I don't know what I'm coming home to. And uh, I got to get home. And I can feel like I just got to get home. And then this, this comes and I'm like, you've got to be kidding me right now. And there's that big storm that was going through uh, Toronto and, and kind of Ontario. And so all the flights are being canceled. So I, I, got, a, I got one text out uh, to Tracy who, who works here and works with me. I said, if you can just please try to find a way for me to get home, just please help me get home. And, and then my phone went dark because I was on a plane. And uh, of course, I got onto the plane and I sit down and my anxiety is already up. I'm like, I'm not going to get home. I'm not going to get home. Never going to get home, ever. I'm not going to get home. We're stuck in Guatemala for the rest of my life, right? How your mind goes. And then I get on this plane and, 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 and the preacher doesn't fly first class. I'm all the very back. I go to the very back by the bathroom where the stank is, you know, and like, 
And I get in there and it's one of those bigger planes that it's got like the three, the three seats, not two, it's the three. And, and I didn't have the window seat and I didn't have the aisle seat. I had the middle seat squarely between two strangers. One guy was a gamer with real pointy elbows. And this other lady just decided that, that my armrest was her armrest and she was gonna help herself to that for the whole flight. And so here I am kind of squeezed up like this between these two people. And doesn't this sweet lady just decide to fall asleep leaning, leaning into me a little bit? With every snore, my soul was just kind of shriveling up the whole way home, right? But what, what do you do with that stuff? I mean, it's not cataclysmic. It's just an inconvenience. You press through those things, don't you? It's not going to change me. You learn how to fight through an inconvenience. You had a bad day at work. You know what? Tomorrow's coming. Cheer up, buttercup's going to get better tomorrow. We know how to press through kind of those inconvenient things, don't we? we? We learn that. We learn just basic resilience. My question isn't so much about that. My question is, what about those things in life that, you know what? It's, it's much more serious that, that if the only problem I had was getting on a plane and being a little uncomfortable for a few hours and not knowing exactly how I was going to get home that night, but I would get home. If that was the only problem in my life, I'd be doing all right. What about the problems that you can't press through, but press through you? What about the problems that are so earth-shaking and so cataclysmic that it actually has the capacity to press down on you in such a way that it just, it just comes all, it becomes all-encompassing. It's all you can think about, and it begins to affect who you are. You move from fear. See, when, when you start to lose the battle with worry and fear, what do, what do you do when the thing that you were worried about happens? What do you do when that happens? You're not worried about it anymore. It already happened, and now it's pressing through your life, and it's squeezing the joy out of your life. How do you get your joy back? So I want to talk about for a few minutes. How do you get your joy back? We've all dealt with despair, every one of us. We've all dealt with situations that, that were so overwhelming to us that it fundamentally affected how we found joy in our lives. It, it fundamentally affected what we, what we thought and how we thought and how we felt. It just, it shifted something. Have you ever gone through a season in your life where it shifted something in you and you weren't the same? Like you weren't the same after you found that out, after you found out they did that. You weren't the same after the divorce. It just rattled you to your core. You're different. You weren't the same after that person died. A part of you went with them. And your, a part of your joy went with them. What do you do when life squeezes you and part of your joy just evaporates because of it? Can we even get the joy back? How do we get that back? How do we find our joy? That's what I want to talk about, the battle against despair for a few minutes. And I don't know what anybody's going through today. You know, I know this, that all of us, you live long enough, you're going to fight it. And you're going to go through a season where we've got to figure out how to find our joy. How do we as people of faith deal with or fight back against despair? Now, here's the good news. And we're going to, this is going to be a very helpful and I hope encouraging message for you today. But the Bible is really honest about despair. The Bible is really honest about, about despair. It's really honest about depression. There are whole parts of the Bible. In fact, the Bible is more honest about despair and discouragement than the church is. I've found certain church circles, you come in, and there's some reasons why it was well-intended, but you come into some certain church circles, and they don't want to talk about the fact that how I feel. They don't want to talk about discouragement. They don't want to talk about despair. It's like that, that shouldn't be talked about. And I'm going to talk in a few minutes about why that happened. But here's the deal. The, the Bible is brutally honest about the whole spectrum of the human experience. There are whole chapters in here that, frankly, you've got to be in a dark place to really get. 
Like Ecclesiastes, like you just, it is a buzzkill. Have you ever read Ecclesiastes? Like it is just, it was like the dude was in a dark place. Some of the Psalms are dark. There's lament in the, in the Bible. It's very honest about the whole spectrum of human life, the whole spectrum of despair and even depression. And you find even in the Bible that some of the greatest heroes of the Bible actually went through extremely dark seasons and depression. You find Jonah just in a bad state. You find David in a bad state. There was a time, one time, David, all of his men turned on him. They thought they lost everything. And the Bible says that that David was grieved into the depths of his soul. You find Elijah, the story of Elijah. He burned out. He had this big showdown on Mount Carmel. He, He beats the prophets of Baal. And then it says he just hit rock bottom. He wanted to die. He was suicidal. This is not unique to our day and age. It's not unique to our time that we, we as human beings have these feelings of deep despair and that can even move beyond despair into actual depression. Uh, I had a great conversation this week. We have so many men and women who are, are part of the medical field in our church family. And I talked to a guy named Dr. Claude Botha, who's a psychiatrist, just a brilliant man. Uh, he probably helped, if you're at the Valley Campus, help park your car when you showed up today. I love that. I love that we've got doctors parking cars. We've got like, uh, I got a CFO of a a multinational company wiping babies' butts in toddler world. It's amazing. I love the church. Isn't that a crazy thing about the church? Like people humbling themselves to serve. It's a beautiful thing. But I talked to to, to Dr. Claude this week, just trying to get an understanding on just, okay, I'm reading up about depression and despair and people use the word depression to cover a whole multitude of things. I was, what's depression? He said, depression is very similar to sadness and despair. It's very similar. It does the same things to you. You know, it'll affect how you live, how you feel. It, it, affect, it makes you feel anger, guilt, hopelessness. He said the side effects of it are like maybe social withdrawal, when you want to pull back, lack of energy, low motivation. Sadness, despair, and depression, they all do the same thing. So they're, they're, they're similar in quality, the doctor said. But he said depression's actually when you get to a place of quantity, that it is actually affecting your physiology. It actually is, fun- it's actually affecting your brain function. And that's why people need medication. Because, and let me just say this as a pastor, this, is, this has been misplayed by a lot of churches. Your brain is an organ. Your brain is an organ. It is not unspiritual. It's not unspiritual if you have liver problems and you take some medication to help your liver get healthy we would not look down on you, would we? We'd say, thank, thank God for the grace of modern medicine. Can I get an amen? That's grace. God gave us that. Don't, don't, don't make a mistake. God gave us, called common grace. Thank God for medicine. It's interesting, though, that we could look within the church, we could look at someone suffering from mental illness or depression, which is actually a neurological thing. The brain is not functioning like it's supposed to. Your brain is an organ. We can look at that and say, oh, you don't need that. You just need Jesus. I do believe you, you need Jesus, and I do believe Jesus is a healer, but there is a neurological thing in your brain that actually needs help. It needs a boost. And so you need to hear today, like as a Christian, one of the ways God will help get you healthy is through the wonder and magic and gift of science and modern medicine. And you, you need, if you, if you are in a place where the quantity of the quality of sadness in your life is so all-encompassing, you may need to see a doctor and see a professional. Depression affects, uh, I read one article that said about 20% of people are going to go through actual clinical depression. 
And it's crazy. I, I talked to a good buddy of mine. He's a pastor in Halifax who's been dealing and has dealt with severe depression. He's on medication to help. And he said, you know what? Like, I love Jesus, and I had to, I had to go through a season where I had to, to wrestle through. Am I, am I unspiritual? Am I not a good Christian? Because I, I'm depressed, and I realize, you know what? If I had diabetes, nobody would be looking down on me because I have to take some insulin. And so I've had to learn how that my brain does not produce enough neurotransmitters for me to be able to process information like I used to be able to. And there's a variety of reasons why that can happen. Some people are born with diabetes, correct? Some people bring it on. Some people, through their habits and through the things they do and the life choices, that can actually bring on diabetes. Either way, it needs insulin. Same thing with mental illness and depression. So I just, that's not my message, but I want to just throw that out there in case there's some confusion on how are we interpreting this. Depression is such a quantitative issue that you do need to talk to somebody and you might actually need some, some things that will actually help fire and trigger your brain back to health so that you can start to make some of these things I'm going to talk about actually happen clearly. There is something something spiritually that we have to do to bring our joy back. But you have to understand something. If you've gotten to the place where your life has so beat you down, there could be something broken in your thinking, not just from a spiritual standpoint, but from a physiological standpoint. And we can pray for healing, and God does that. And you know what? God also provides doctors, and that's a beautiful thing. Can I get an amen? Amen. So here's the question, though. How do we deal with depression? How do we deal with, okay, let's assume that if you are fully depressed, you're getting some, some help. But you know what? The interesting thing Dr. Botha said was that modern medicine can't actually heal someone who's clinically depressed. What medicine does is it just gives you the brain power to be able to actually start making good decisions. Depression affects your thinking. So it's like, uh, it's like he said, he's described it like this. It's like turning the lights on in the dark room so you can start to navigate. But it's not going to heal you. It's just going to help you process. So here's the question, though. How do we learn to process, no matter where we are on the spectrum of dealing with despair? I don't know what you're going through. But how do we, what tools has Jesus, what tools has the word given us to actually bring joy back? What can we do? I want to read one scripture today, among others, but really just one. And I want to look at, because it actually gives us some tools that what you can do to bring back joy. Here is what I am confident of, and I'm going to show you why in a second, that joy, true abundant joy, hear this, is fully possible in every circumstance and situation of life. I thought there'd be more amens there. (laughs) This is the group that needs to talk to the doctor, I think, first before you're going to hear me today. No, listen, according to the word of God, I'm going to preach this in a sec, but Joy is possible. True, abundant joy is possible regardless of the scenario or circumstance of your life. It's what the Word of God says. And I want to look at how we access that today. If you have a Bible, go to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians is a letter that Paul wrote, and it's called the joy letter. It's the the chapter, the the book of joy, the letter of joy. It's interesting, though, that the most joy-filled piece of literature, the most joy-filled letter in the whole Bible was written by a guy in prison. That's amazing. What contrast and what a great testimony that an authority on finding joy in dark places than a dude who wrote about joy in a literal prison. And his prison was not like our prisons. Not that our prisons are gravy, but his was nasty. So I don't have time for it, but maybe another time. So how do we access the joy 
Let's read Philippians chapter 4. Paul says this. And I don't, I'm going to go quick, but this is going to be helpful, I think. Look what he says in Philippians chapter 4. He says, always, now that, I'm going I'm to go Greek on you here. Always means always. It means always. It means forever. It means just always, never stopping. So in whatever circumstance, always be full of joy. Look what he says. In the Lord. Always be full of joy in the Lord. Other translations, if you, if you grew up in church, you probably heard another translation that says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again. Rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do and remember the Lord is coming soon. That's all I want to look at. Always be full of joy, the joy, always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Now, what is he talking about here? In here, he actually shows us how to actually find joy in the Lord. Look what he says. Always be full of joy in the Lord. Now, I always found this confusing. I always found this scripture confusing. Anybody ever hear this scripture before? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Now, he is using like the redundancy for, 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 you know, to be emphatic about it. Rejoice, rejoice. But there's a little more going on here as I got to research it than I thought there was. He wasn't just saying something twice. He wasn't just saying something twice. He, he actually was saying something twice, but differently both times. That's why in the NLT, and that's why I chose to use the NLT, they translate it not rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, but it says always be full of joy in the Lord. And again, I'll say rejoice. He's actually talking about two different things. He's talking first about the feeling, and then second, he's talking about the activity. He's saying always be full of joy, and the way that you're full of joy is by the act of joy. Super confusing. Let me, let me break this down for you all looking at me. The Halifax is on point today. I can feel it. I know it. You're tracking with me. That's good. Here's, let's break this down. We're going to do Bible study today. Is that all right? Any Bible nerds? I am, so you're going to have to go with it if you're not. All right. Look what, look what it says. Always be full of joy. Whose joy? Pastor Seth talked about this last week. It's the joy of who? It's God's joy, the joy of the Lord. But look what he says, though, where joy comes from. It comes in the Lord. How often when we think about joy do we think, I will be happy when what? My circumstances change. I put my joy in not going through this. My joy will be found in getting married. My joy will be found in getting divorced. My joy will be found in having kids. My joy will be found in the kids moving out. My joy will be found in getting a job. My joy will be found in getting a different job, right? How, how often do we think of our joy as something that is found in something outside of ourselves, correct? But Paul actually says, and the Bible holds this up from beginning to end, that joy is actually not something that is found in your environment or your circumstances. Joy is found in the Spirit, and it is found in God. And this is why Paul is saying that joy can be found in any place, because your joy is actually not contingent upon your circumstances. The joy of the Lord can be found anywhere, and you can find it in Him alone. So he says, find the joy of the Lord. And then he says that, that rejoice, 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 rejoice. Why is he saying it twice? He says, always be full of joy in the Lord. He's first talking about your calling. It's a promise. Always be full of joy in the Lord. What's he saying? He's saying what I just said earlier, that no matter what the situation, no matter what the circumstance of your life, no matter what you're going through at any given time, 
that joy is your birthright as a Christian. Joy is the promise. Joy is what the God, it's the standard that God has set on your life. He says, always, no matter if you're in prison, no matter if you're selecting a coffin, no matter if you're going through treatment, no matter if you're trying to repair the marriage, always be full of joy. He's saying you can have joy. That is the, that's the picture. That's the, that's the product. That's what we want you to have. He's saying always be full of joy. Make that the standard. Don't even think for a second that God doesn't want you to experience joy in all circumstances. Always be full of joy. Never be deflated. He's convinced that joy is possible regardless of the circumstances. But then he says this. Rejoice. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Now he's not talking about a standard. He's talking about something that you do. It uses that as a verb. It's the Greek word kero, which, which is actually like physical. He's talking about the fact, and get this, that somehow the joy of the Lord, being full of joy, is actually connected into rejoicing in the Lord. Oh, look at me so confused right now. The feeling of joy is directly connected to the activity of joy. That, you're, that physically, there are ways that God wants us to act and posture ourselves that when we do these things, the byproduct or the result is always full of joy. So when he says, always be full of joy, standard, and again I say rejoice, commandment. He's saying if you do this, if you rejoice in all circumstances, the byproduct will be fullness of joy in all circumstances. Are you, are you catching it? Saturday, you, guys, are you catching it? Yeah, okay. Always be full of joy. It's the, it's, it's the, it's the byproduct, and rejoicing is the activity. Uh, this, is being, this is the proactivity. This is the, the reaction, the reactivity. So being full of joy is the byproduct of doing the activity of joy. This is what, I know this is confusing. That's why, that's why translators have had a hard time trying to separate it. So they just gave up and they said, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let's keep going. But what, what it's saying is this, that as you do the things of joy unto the Lord, the feeling of joy begins to take root from within. It was so interesting this week, and I did not set this up this way. I had this conversation with Dr. Botha, and he said, one of the things we try to do when people are depressed is, I get them on medication, and it's, it's, more, like a, it's more like a cast. If someone needs medication, it's something like a cast doesn't heal you. A cast keeps, the, keeps your broken arm in place so that your body will heal itself. And so medication will help people make good choices, but what, we, what really helps kind of rewire the neurology is that people start doing the things that a healthy person would do. So I prescribe a good schedule and good food and good sleep patterns. And that if I can get you living healthy, the health will catch up. And he says it's called cognitive behavioral therapy. That if you do the stuff a healthy person does, the health will come behind it. And this is exactly what Paul is saying. If you do the stuff that a joyful person does in all circumstances, the joy will fill behind it. Are you catching that? It's exciting. That means... It's both exciting and terrifying because you can no longer, we said this week one, you can't be a victim. You no longer can sit back and say, well, I'm going to wait around till the joy comes. No, God says, start rejoicing and the joy will come. So 
here's the question. What are the things, what does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? What does that look like? Rejoicing in the Lord is what we do to access the joy that God already wants to give us. Just said a lot there, and I'm getting blank stares. Rejoicing in the Lord is what we do to access the joy that God already wants to give us. If you want to feel joyful, if you want to get your joy back, if life has squeezed the joy out of you and you want to get your joy back, here's what you do. You start rejoicing in the Lord. You start doing joyful activity unto God. When the pressures of life begin to deflate you, we find joy when we learn to rejoice in the Lord. So really quick, I want to give you handles. This is not a series that I'm just going to give you a pep talk. Because here's the pep talk. you got work to do. If you want to find joy, there's stuff that we actually have to do. God will do his part to give us supernatural peace and joy that passes all understanding. But we have got to learn, church, how to posture ourselves in such a way that we unlock it and receive it. And that's what it's talking about here, about rejoicing in the Lord. Be full of joy by rejoicing. So here I have four things, four things I want you to see. And they're going to go faster than you think they are. So buckle up. So rejoice in the Lord. And there's four ways we're going to do this, four ways that, that, that biblically it looks like to rejoice in the Lord, four things. So first and foremost, I'm going to learn to rejoice God, rejoice in God in my ways or in my doing. Rejoice in my ways or in my doing. Here's a realization we've got to make, that my actions actually have the power to access joy in my life. My actions or my activities actually have the power to access joy in my life regardless of the way I feel. Look what he says. Philippians 4, bring that scripture back up. He says, always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Verse 5, look at what it says. Let everyone see, so he's talking about activity. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all that you do. Consider it and all you know. What's he talking about? The old King James, I like, I like what it says. Like, let everyone see your moderation in all that you do. He's talking about health. He's talking about balance. He's talking about intentionality. He's talking about discipline. He's talking about the stuff that looks healthy. What's he saying? He's saying, rejoice in the Lord always. As again, say rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate. Let everyone see your intentionality. He's talking about how you build your life. What you give yourself to, your level of health. He's saying there's a direct correlation to your level of joyfulness to the level of consideration you give to how you do your doing. I've got to learn to rejoice in my ways. This idea of intentionality. Paul is communicating God-directed proactivity. That when you start to do things unto God intentionally, it starts to bring the joy and the health that you were missing. He's saying rejoicing in the Lord is accessing joy in all circumstances by doing God-pointed or God-directed proactivity. Here's the temptation I've found in my life. In the times that I've been hit the hardest, in the times the wind has been knocked out of me in my life, and you've had those moments too, what's the temptation? The temptation is you just want to what? Shut it down, right? Isn't that what we do? We can have a dialogue. Yeah, 
That's what we do. East, East are always on point. Just saying, thank you, East. Yeah, we want to shut it down. We just want to, I want to curl up in a ball. I want to hibernate. I'm going to binge watch Gilmore Girls all week and eat ice cream. That's what I'm going to do, right? Yeah, like we just want to shut it down. What do we do? The temptation is unto idleness. We just want to put the car in neutral and just, I'm not going forward, I'm not going backward, I'm just sitting here. It's just the engine's barely running. Idleness. That's the temptation. And Paul is saying, at the time that you feel like doing the least, that's the time to spring into God-directed action. Because in those moments, it starts to release new joy and new life. It, it like cleans out the, the old stuff and brings in the new. Here's what I know to be true in my life, and I'm learning this. Idleness produces nothing. Idleness produces nothing. There, there is a place for rest, but I am even learning that I need to rest on purpose. Anybody know the difference there? Idleness produces nothing. Like just doing nothing, if you're not doing it on purpose, there's a place for doing nothing. I know I'm saying so many confusing things today. I, I get that. There is a place for doing nothing, but not unintentionally. If you are just letting your life kind of just go with the wind, you're going to get blown everywhere. So the Bible says, no, you got to be intentional. you got to fasten down. you got to actually build up some structure in your life. Listen, the Bible, it talks about grace. It talks about the free gift of God's grace and that it can't be earned. But it also talks about the effort associated with appropriating the grace God's given you. That, that grace is not, Dallas Willard said, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. See the difference? Grace is not opposed to effort. To unlock the grace and the joy of God in your life, it's going to take discipline. You got to eat your carrots sometimes, right? It's going to take discipline. The time you feel like doing the least is usually the time you need to be doing the most. I've talked to Pastor Adam. He's our recovery pastor. He, he runs our Celebrate Recovery Ministry. And I asked him, what, what, what are the biggest red flags for you when you see someone's recovery and you know, you, you, what, what makes you worry the most for someone's recovery? He says, it's the ones that they go through something and then they, they just basically, they leave. They have to back off. They, don't, they aren't part of the celebrate recovery. They're not, they're not doing their, their volunteer role. They back away thinking that's going to help them. I just need some space. But that's actually the fundamental flaw. You think that you're shutting things down that's going to help you. It's actually hurting you. That's the time to press in when you're most when you're the hurt the most, when you're most deflated, that's the time to give the most. So I gotta learn to rejoice in my ways. The time you feel like doing the least is usually when you need to be doing the most. Man, this isn't a fun message, is it? It's like, I don't, this is like Christian CrossFit happening right now. <laughs> Rejoicing in my ways is God-directed activity. I gotta hurry. Here's a few things. If, you want, if you're taking notes, some of you are taking notes. Uh, obedience and holiness. It looks like obedience and holiness. It looks like doing the things that God tells you to do and not doing the things God tells you not to do. Do you know there is a direct correlation to your level of joy and your level of obedience? It's not rocket science. If I say yes to God, it will produce joy in my life. If I say no to him, I'm severing the connection. That's why it says in Psalm 1, uh, blesses the man who walks not on the path of the wicked or sits in the, stands in the seat of scoffers or stands in the, sits in the seat of sinners. Like, I don't know, seats stand anyway. And he says this, but blessed is the one who meditates on the law of the Lord. On it, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of living water. His leaf does not wither. He bears fruit in its season. And all he does, he prospers. But he says, not so like the wicked. They're like the chaff blowing in the wind. Jesus said it differently in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, 
He said, blessed is the one who hears my words and puts them into practice. He is like the person who built their house on the rock. And when the rains came and the winds blew, the house stood. But the foolish builder builds their house on sand. They're not grounded in anything. They don't have a plan. They don't have activity. They are undisciplined. They aren't healthy. And their lives go the way of the wind. He says, obedience. Uh, You know what else it looks like? Let me just say this. Well, since I'm ranting and off script today, uh, let me just say this. It also looks like physical health. That, 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 that rejoicing in your ways actually looks like realizing my body is a temple of the living God and God gave me this to steward and I gotta make some decent decisions once in a while. Do you know that there are people at CrossFit that are happier than you and they don't even know Jesus? Fact. Fact. Why? Because they're healthy. There is a direct correlation to your spirit with your body. They're connected. We've got to stop separating that stuff. God made your spirit, your body, your mind, your soul. It all functions together. And so your your body is is a direct connector to your spirit. You want to start feeling better? Get healthy. That's, That's one way. That's one way. Looks like discipline and denial. Sometimes we just get too much junk in our lives. It's not bad. It's just stuff. And it's taking up space that God wants to fill with joy. So, and you know what, probably the, 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 easiest, the easiest way to rejoice in God by what you're doing is by serving other people. It looks like selflessness and servanthood. Uh, it's that invitation of Jesus who says, whoever thinks they'll save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life, what? For my sake, they will find it. When you empty yourself, it brings, gives space for God to fill with joy. So we got to learn how to rejoice in the Lord. If you're going to get your joy back first, you got to learn how to do it in your ways. Here's a question you can ask yourself. What would I do today if I was healthy? What would I be doing today if I was happy? What would I be doing today if I, if I wasn't depressed? Start doing those things. When it feels like you have nothing left to give, give what you have and God will give you what you need. You can tweet that. Rejoice, number two. I need to learn how to rejoice in my words. I wish I had more time. I don't have a lot of time. Uh, My saying, my speaking. Rejoicing in my words. Do you know that your words have the power to create your experience? They actually have the power to create how you're receiving information, how you're thinking. You talk about cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapy. Your words are either building an agreement or a disagreement with, your sta- with everything that you're saying. And you give power by your words. So here's a realization you have to have, that my words have the power to affect my joy, regardless of how I feel. Here's the scary truth. A lot of us continue to speak agreement over our depression, over our despair. If you keep saying, I'm depressed, I'm depressed, I'm depressed, I'm depressed, I'm depressed, what do you think the the next thing is going to be? Like, what do you think the the road that you are building is? Like, like what's momentum going to even do? It's going to lead you where? depression. If if you think, I'm a screw-up. I'm a screw-up. I'm a screw-up. I can't get it right. It's who I am. I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot. Like, 
at a certain point, you, every time you say that, like, okay, spiritually, you are building an agreement, and I could do a whole talk about the power, like, spiritual power of words, but let's just go, like, physiologically. Neurologically, you are actually building highways in your brain that's now telling you, yep, you're an idiot, yep, you're an idiot, yep, you're an idiot. You're, you're reinforcing that in your brain. And so we have got to learn how to take control of our words. It's not that we walk around like we're in denial, like, you know, like we're delusional, like, no, it's not happening, like, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying be careful what comes out of your mouth because you're, you're placing power and value on it. Your words have power. Look at some of these scriptures. They're terrifying. Proverbs 21, 23. I love, I love Proverbs because it's, uh, it's Solomon. And he's got some sass. Look what he says. Watch your tongue and keep your mouth shut. And you'll stay out of trouble. Proverbs 10, 19. Too much talk leads to sin, but so be sensible and keep your mouth shut. I love it. The, the, the BIV, the Brent Ingersoll version says, keep your, uh, be sensible and shut up. That's what it says, yeah. Proverbs 29, 11. This is, this, oh man. Proverbs 29, 11. A fool gives vent to their rage. Isn't that the temptation? I just gotta, I gotta speak my mind right now. I'm just gonna speak my mind, right? Like I gotta, I just gotta vent. My, my wife loves to vent. She's like, don't, don't bring your venting on me. I don't want, I don't want that. Like, right? Don't, is nobody vents? Yeah, jock, you vent all the time. In Halifax, you're a venter. Yeah, we vent. That's the temptation. We try to, try to vent. Do you know what you're doing, though? You think you're, like, depressurizing your stress level. Nope, your joy is leaking out when you're venting. You're just opening all the valves, and everything's going out. It doesn't, it's not helpful to vent. Is confession helpful? Yes. Venting, though, you're just spewing words. It's just, that's all you're doing not helping anything. I just call it like I see it. Exactly, that's your problem. For real. Start calling it like God sees it. You can go home with that. You keep forming an agreement. You keep giving it permission to exist in your life. We got to learn the art of denial. Not delusion denial. Like, yeah, you know what? I, 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 I've, I've been depressed, but in Jesus' name, I'm coming out. Whew. Your words have power. And you know what has even more power is God's word. Put it on your mouth. Put it in your heart. Put it in your mind. It changes things. We've got to learn how to rejoice in, his, in, in the word, in our words, using it. Look, look what it says. Do you know that it's not just the power to destroy, it's the power to build up. Look at Proverbs 18, 21. It says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. It's, the choice is yours. Are you using your words for death or life? 1 Peter 3.10, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. The choice is yours. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting or degrading talk come out of your mouths, but only such is as good for building up. For building up as it fits the occasion that it may what? Give grace to those who hear. Do you know who the first person who needs to hear words of grace? You. Use your words to speak grace and edify, edify yourself in the word of God. Speak it over, like even as we're praying today before service, like Pastor Dan saying, you know, claiming the word of God over, over us as a body that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. That's who we are. 
And I don't care what, what the, the powers of this world or what my bank account says or what my body says. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Use your words. Use your words to build, build up, to build up, to rejoice in the Lord. Steer your life in a new direction. So with my, with my ways, with my words, number three, and I, can't, I don't have time for this. I'm going to spend a whole week on this in a couple weeks. With my worship, with my praising, these are all connected. But what are you exalting in your life? Like, what are, you, what are you actually exalting? Do you know that a lot of us, we just spend a lot of time exalting our problems? It's just glorifying it. Not liking it, but glorifying it. Saying it's so great, it's so great, it's so great. You know what happens when you magnify your problems? You magnify your problems. They get bigger. They get bigger in your mind and your heart. So that's why the Bible tells us to, to magnify the Lord. And as you magnify the Lord, it minimizes your problems. They might not disappear on the outside, but I'll tell you what, there can only be room for one king in here and in here. And you have the opportunity by the power of, of praise, and we're going to talk about that in a couple weeks, and I, I wish I had more time today. But here's the deal. My adorations and the things that I elevate have the power to access the joy of the Lord in my life, regardless of my circumstances. That's one of my favorite scriptures is the story of Paul and Silas in the prison. In the middle of the night, they're in chains and they start worshiping and the chains break off and there's this earthquake. It's this picture of the power of worship. When you start worshiping God, anything can happen. Things break up and foundations move and doors fling open. And I'm telling you, this is one of the most powerful things. So here's the deal. If you're tired of being under the power of despair and discouragement, if you're tired of being under it, stop elevating it. Stop exalting it. Call it for what it is. It's an enemy. Start exalting the God. Put him in his rightful place. All right, number four, and we're going to be done. I'm going to finish on time. But these are handles. These are handles that I, if you start doing these things, you get these things aligned and in order, it actually unlocks joy. But here's the key right here. Uh, number four, and I don't like using this word because, because it's, it's flaky, but let me just, it starts with W and it works, so... <laughs> This is, I need to learn how to rejoice in my wishing, but really what I'm talking about is having a right hope. At the core, at the core of despair, at the core of disillusionment, at the core of discouragement, and I would even argue spiritually at the core of depression, even though it can physiologically affect you, at the core of it, all roots back to one simple thing, that somewhere along the way, you lost your hope. That's really what this is all about. It's about hope. And here's something we have to realize, that our hope, what I hope in, has the power, if I hope in the Lord, to actually produce joy in my life, regardless of the way I feel and regardless of what is happening. That, the, that, that actually... Hoping in Jesus is a living hope that will never, ever go away. Look what Paul says. Let's finish our scripture, Philippians 4. He says, always be full of joy in the Lord. That's your birthright. He says, I'll say it again. Rejoice. That's what you do. And look what he says. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all that you do. You're being intentional. You're learning how to rejoice God with your, rejoice in the Lord in your lifestyle, using your words to build up God and build up yourself by his truth, to speak the word of God. You're, you're worshiping the right things. You're, you're giving praise. You're learning the power of praise. But then look what he says. He says, let everyone see that you're considerate in all that you do and remember 
the Lord is coming soon. So above it all, he, he, he calls you to hope right. He calls you to what you're hoping in. Now, here's the question. Why does Paul follow this commandment to rejoice in the Lord always with a remember, Jesus is coming. Why does he want to bring it to our attention? Because at the heart of discouragement is the loss of hope. Proverbs 13, 12 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And if something gets sick enough, long enough, it dies. And for a lot of us, heart sickness has set in because day after day, we've deferred our hope. We were hoping it would be the day. We hoped that today would be the day. We hoped that this would happen. Oh, I hope that this would happen 10 days ago. And so your hope is drying up and your joy goes with it. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. That's, what, that's where discouragement comes from. So Paul says, remember that as a believer, your hope is not fixed in any circumstance. It's in a someone. It's not fixed in yesterday. It's not even fixed in right now. Your, your hope is coming in fullness and it cannot be taken away. Look what 1 Peter 1 says. Peter's also talking to his Christians. He's talking to Christians who are being burned at the stake. And look what he says. Blessed be the God of our, our Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He's caused us to be born again into a what? Can you say it out loud? A living hope. That's huge. This isn't some flighty, here today, gone tomorrow hope. It's not like a maybe hope. It's not wishing upon a star. It's not, it's not blow out the candles and hope. It's, it's a living hope. It's a living, real hope that's here today and it's coming in fullness tomorrow. Look what he says. We have a living hope through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope is in a someone who rose from death in victory. So what? We trust what he says and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. That's our hope. That cannot be taken away. So he's saying, staple your hope to the eternal. Staple your hope to that living hope that is in Christ so that even if your body dies, my hope doesn't. Even if you, 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 you know what, you lost the job, I didn't lose my hope. My hope's not in my job. My hope's in my Jesus. You know what, you lost your loved one, but I didn't lose my hope because my hope's still alive. His name's Jesus. He's always been alive. He died once and he'll never die again. My hope's in something that cannot die. Do you see that? So if your hope is in Jesus, then your hope can never be taken away because Jesus is alive forever and ever and ever. So remember, remember, he's coming back. Look what he said. I want to read the rest of 1 Peter. I'm getting ahead of myself. He says, you've been brought into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power, hallelujah, until the coming of salvation that is ready to be re revealed in the last time. In all this, you say it out loud. Great name of John. In all of this, you, in all of this, you, yes, I believe you now. Okay. You greatly rejoice in all of this. You greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. He doesn't have to name them. Why? Because our hope's greater than the trial. It's amazing. We have a living hope. This is why at Christian funerals, it's just different. 
yeah, I'm a pastor. I've been to a lot of funerals. I, I'm like a 10,000. I'm an expert on funerals, not something you want to be. I just am. I've been to a lot of them. And you go to some and their hope, either they don't have any. I've been to some, like I've been to atheistic funerals and there's no hope. That's awful. Uh, I've also been to ones though that it's not Christian. It's just like hoping and hope. It's well-wishy. It's, well, I know so-and-so. Sup with the man upstairs. And if anybody deserves to go there, it's Jim. Like, based, what are you basing that on? It's so, can I be honest? Can I just, like, between me and you? So many, so many funerals. Like, I've heard people talk, and I know they're grieving, so I let it happen and stuff. But so many times I'm going, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That is not true. That is not true. You are basing your hope on how you feel. I need a hope that's much stronger than how I feel any given moment. I need a hope that's based on Christ who came, Christ who died and who rose again and is coming again in fullness. My hope has got to be squarely in that. Otherwise, my joy goes wherever my hope goes. And he is giving us a living hope. Church, hope has a name. It's Jesus. Joy has a name. His name's Jesus. As you give yourself to him, as you honor him in all your ways, use your words to, to, to edify him in your life. As you, as you learn how to worship him and you set your hope squarely on him, I believe the joy will come back. We just stand all of our locations. Let's pray together. Let's rejoice in him today. Hope is alive. Hope is alive right now. Hope is alive. You, you. Some of you thought you lost your hope. Your hope was in something, it should never have been in something that was losable in the first place. Find it, find real hope in Jesus. It'll never, ever, ever go away. In fact, it's only gonna come in increase forever and ever. It's only gonna get better and stronger and more glorious. That's amazing. Father, thank you today that I feel joy in my own spirit rising. I thank you for that, Lord. That's something that you do in us. And so, Father, right now, we just rejoice in you in Jesus' name. We thank you, Lord, that we have a living hope. We thank you, Lord, that we have a hope that will never, never spoil or fade or perish. God, thank you today that these light momentary afflictions, are, they're actually purposeful and they're preparing for us a glory, the eternal weight of glory beyond all compare. And so, Father, I pray right now over all of our campuses, Halifax, East, West, Valley, would you just, would hope rise in our hearts right now? Would joy rise in our hearts? Joy and hope that cannot, cannot fade or, or perish or spoil, Lord. The joy of the Lord, would it strengthen us? Would it give us resolve, we pray in Jesus' name? Holy Spirit, would you lift our heads right now? Would you just replace that spirit of despair with hopefulness? and joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Mourning for dancing. Heaviness with a garment of praise, we pray. Thank you, Lord, that you're able to do that by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody rejoiced and said, amen, amen. amen.